today we are in John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Um, John chapter 11, man, this, this passage took me a little bit by surprise. Um, I've read this, I don't know, dozens of times. I love the story that we're going to be looking at today. Um, I, it caught me differently this time as I was studying it. And, and specifically, there's one key word that I don't think I ever noticed or at least really understood before that, that really grabbed me. Here's the thing. This is a passage about suffering. This is a passage about pain. And I think every single one of us has that experience where, where we're suffering. Something went wrong. Something hurts. Something stupid happened. It seems so random, so stinking avoidable. And it happened anyway, and it hurts. And we're left asking, where was God? Why did that happen? Now, this can be something small. <laughs> These are things that in the long run are completely insignificant, and you'll probably forget about over the course of your life, but in the moment they seem incredibly important, right? You're running to class, and you put your backpack on the roof of your car. Oops, you forget. You get to class, and you've lost everything. Crisis in the moment. 20 years from now, probably not a big deal, right? But in the moment, you're putting your kids in the car. Your phone drops out of your pocket into a puddle and breaks the screen. You know what I'm saying? In the moment, crisis. In the moment, what the heck, right? Um, bad day, getting worse kind of a thing. So those are minor things, but sometimes they're not small. Sometimes it's an illness that turns out to be more than just an illness. Sometimes it's a pain that turns out to be chronic or irreversible. Sometimes it's death. You guys, our story today is about this. It answers that question. It looks at this, the heart of this. Where is Jesus when things go wrong? Where is Jesus when things hurt? And why doesn't he stop them if he can? The bottom line of today's message is this. We need to trust God's character if we're going to trust God's motives. When we suffer... We have to trust God's character if we're going to trust God's motives. So that's kind of where we're going. We have a long passage today, so I'm going to kind of walk through this. I'm going to be reading it, but I'm going to give you a little bit of commentary as we go through. Um, I thought that would be the most effective way to kind of work our way through this story. So John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after he said to the disciples, then after that, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Um, pause for a sec. Mary, Martha, and, and, and Lazarus. A family in Bethany, which is less than two miles outside of Jerusalem, 
Um, this was a, a well-to-do family. They were fairly wealthy and clearly had a tight relationship with Jesus. So when Jesus was traveling through the area, more than likely he would stay at their house. They would, they would support him and minister to him. Um, they clearly had a strong devotion to him, right? That reference to Mary washing his feet with her hair. It's a powerful story of love and devotion. And they come up in several other places in scripture where there's just stories of, of them interacting with Jesus. He had a close relationship with them. And they specifically identify Lazarus as the one whom you love which would indicate that Jesus actually had a personal friendship with Lazarus, right? This is the kind of guy that they would sit around in the evening and these two had laughs together, okay? They hung out together. He, he enjoyed Lazarus's company. He had a personal connection with him, right? Now, now that's all understandable. That's kind of the setting, but there's something already weird in this. <laughs> and I want to highlight it, okay? Because it gets weirder, all right? But, but notice in, in verse 9, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed. Let me ask you something. You get news that your best friend is deathly ill. What do you do? You at least pick up the phone. Well, you didn't have a phone. I, I know. But he purposely stayed, right? You, you get in your car, you go. If you can't get in your car, you, you figure out how to get a flight, man. You, you figure out how to be there. But it says he loved them, so he stayed. He purposely stayed away. Keep that in your memory. We're going to come back to it. Jump down to verse 11. After saying these things to his disciples, they're arguing with him because it's really dangerous to go back near Jerusalem. After saying these things... He said to them, his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Okay, so the, again, this weird Jesus... You know, in the beginning, he's not going to die. And then, oh, he's falling asleep. And okay, look, he died. Okay. Um, he's not lying. He, he, he is speaking because obviously none of this is taking him off guard. He has a plan in this situation that nobody else knows and nobody else understands. And he's revealing it to them progressively. So he's like, he's like okay, now I can show you a little bit more of my plan. Now I can show you a little bit more of my plan. Right? There's something going on in this that allows him to, he has a purpose running, there's a thread running through this whole thing. He's not derailed by it. He's not surprised by it. They are. He's not. And he progressively re reveals to them what's going on in, in the process. Um, so he, he purposely stayed away for two days so that Lazarus would die. We don't know exactly when he died, but at this point they leave and, and based on where you think Jesus is at this point, because it's not clearly stated in the text, it could take him anywhere from two to four days to travel um, back to, to visit the family. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Pause. That's important. Cultural thinking during this period of time, the Jews believed that after a person died, that person's spirit hovered over the body for three days. And in the course of that three days, it was in fact possible for that person to be resuscitated, for the spirit to return into the body and for the body to come back to life. Four days beyond, no. 
and it's and it's pretty obvious why. Um, decay sets into a a deceased body fairly quickly in in that culture and in that time. And by the fourth day, um, it's clearly clearly the body is too decayed. Things are going bad, right? And so he waits until the fourth day. And you're going to see that that reference to fourth day comes up numerous times because of this. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. Um, just for reference, during this period of time, you didn't suffer alone in this culture. When you were grieving, the entire community would come around you and, in fact, come into your home. They came and grieved with you. So all of their friends, this is a wealthy, influential family, their friends would travel from Jerusalem and, and the people that they knew would come from Jerusalem and stay with them to mourn with the family. Mourning became a, a community thing more than just an individual thing. And in fact, they took it so seriously that if you had any means at all, you would actually hire professional mourners which sounds really weird to us, but in that culture, that's what they did. They would hire professional mourners, and these mourners would basically be around you at all times um, to echo your emotional state. So if you were wailing, they were wailing. If you were sobbing, they were sobbing. If you were quiet, they were quiet. They reflected your emotional condition back to you uh, as part of the grieving process. And, and so you've got a home full, I want you to catch this, a home full of people who are in, um, in mourning, okay? All right, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him outside of the home. That, that explains why she left the home and met him on the way. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Um, think about this statement. This is a profound statement of faith. If you had been here, it's not an accusation, it's a statement of faith. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. You have that kind of power. You have the power to speak someone out of illness, right? You, you healed the blind man. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. You, you, you healed the blind man and restored his sight, a man born blind. You're the, you're the one who has power over the brokenness of this world. If you had been here, my brother would have been healed. I want you to see though, that while this is a statement of faith, it is also an expression of a lack of faith. Notice what is implied here. If you had been here, my brother would have been healed. But since you weren't, he wasn't. It's not an accusation. It's actually more of an explanation. Why didn't, God, why didn't Jesus prevent this? Well, because he wasn't there. He wasn't able to. And yet Jesus had purposely delayed his visit for two days to ensure Lazarus's death. He had a purpose in their suffering that they did not see. Now, Jesus ran into a guy at one point, a, a Gentile centurion, 
I'm not even, not even a Jewish guy, a Gentile centurion. And this Gentile centurion came to Jesus and said, I have a servant that I love who's very ill. Would you speak the word and heal my, my servant? And Jesus said, okay, let's go. And, and the centurion's like, no, 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 I'm not worthy for you to actually come to my house. You don't have to come to my house. I know how it works. I'm a, I'm a, a centurion. I have people under me. And, and when I say to this one, go do this, he goes and does it. When I say to this one, go do that, he goes and does it. So if you just speak the word, Jesus, my servant will be healed. You don't have to be there. If you'll just speak the word, my servant will be healed. And Jesus responded to him, I haven't, this is, and he says to his disciples, I haven't seen this kind of faith in the nation of Israel. And he said to a centurion, go, your servant has been healed. And he left and he went and he found his, his servant healed. This is a statement of faith and a lack of faith. And the challenge with it being a lack of faith is the implication that Jesus was in fact obligated to heal their brother. If you had been here, I know what you would have done. You would have healed my brother. If you had been here, I know you would have. Because that's the right thing to do, and I know what's right. Now, Jesus doesn't rebuke her. This isn't the kind of lack of faith where where Jesus is going to come in and, and bring a hammer down on this. But I want you to notice it because it becomes important later in the passage. So she says, I know you could have healed it. Even now, anything you say will be done, right? I, I, I don't doubt your, your power. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Simple, powerful statement. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She takes that as a statement of, of comfort. On the last day, your brother will be raised and he'll be restored to you. She's like, I know that. Of course, he's speaking of something much nearer and more powerful than that. Um, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. (laughs) Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Profound interchange. She's the only other person I know of other than Peter that so clearly professed that Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of God. Powerful words of faith, right? But listen to what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say, I've been given the authority of resurrection. He already said that in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, he said, my voice will call the dead back to life. That authority has been given to me. All judgment has been given to the Son from the Father, and I'll be the one who calls people back to life. He doesn't say, I'm the agent of resurrection. He doesn't say, I have the authority of resurrection. Listen to what he says. He says, I am the resurrection. It's not something I do. It is something I am. I am the resurrection and I am the life. Mary, your brother is dead and he's in the grave and you're standing in the presence of resurrection. The presence of life. It is my presence that gives life. It is who I am, not something I do. She confesses that he is the Christ, the Son of God, but she doesn't fully get it, as we'll see. Verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. 
And when she had heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village and was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when, when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her. So, so picture that, the whole entourage, right? All, the whole group, they, they think, okay, this is our chance. We're going to go with her to mourn at the tomb. Supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord... If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Notice the same exact words. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, one of the most profound. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Isn't that the exact same question that we're wrestling with? And then Jesus, deeply moved, again came to the tomb. Um, I want you to pay attention to that one little, two words, deeply moved. It's one word in the Greek. It's used twice. It's the only two places that's used in the New Testament. That's the word that unhinged me this week, and I'm going to come back to it in a minute. So Jesus says, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you would always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Kind of a weird prayer, but, but it indicates that Jesus obviously had a very vibrant, private prayer life with his Father. And this prayer is coming on the tail end of, of a series of prayers, and he's basically inviting others in and saying, okay, this is a conversation that's going on between me and the Father, okay? And I'm going to publicly thank the Father so that you guys can be in on what's going on, okay? Verse 43, when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. A number of commentary, commentators mentioned the fact that had he left the name off the front of that, every tomb would have been opened. Would have been uh, quite crazy. But he specializes at Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Can you imagine that sight, you guys? Like he's coming out, he's, he's wrapped in this thing. It's tied around his ankles. His arms are tied around. He's got this thing covering his face and he's waddling out of the tomb. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Um, I'm guessing there was a party after that. Not exactly positive. Honestly, I'm not even sure how Lazarus felt about the whole thing. We're not told. But I do want to talk about that little phrase, deeply moved. That's the story. Profound, profound, powerful. Um, but I want to talk about that, that, that phrase, deeply moved. In verse 33, but when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Um, when the crowd saw him deeply moved, they jumped to an assumption. They said, oh my goodness, look how much he loved Lazarus. 
because he loved Lazarus, because he was such good friends with Lazarus, he, he, he was visibly emotional, right? Jesus wept. And when they saw this, they said, holy cow, he must have, he must have really loved Lazarus. And then when he raised Lazarus from the dead, guess how they would have interpreted it? Because Jesus loved Lazarus so much and he had the power to call him back from the dead, he did. Why? Because Lazarus was his friend. Because he missed Lazarus. Because he had the power to restore what was broken in the situation and because he was personally sad, he did it. That's a misinterpretation of what's going on. They were wrong. And honestly, so was I. Because I didn't really realize it, but I think that's how I read this story for a long time. That Lazarus was deeply moved when he saw these people he loved in pain. And he also was in pain because he also was mourning with them. He was moved to do something about it. What changed my mind, honestly, was this word, deeply moved. It's a word that doesn't mean sadness. It's only used two times in the New Testament right here. And in every non-biblical use of this word, it means anger, not sadness. It's a word that, um, that evokes the idea of a snorting of a horse, the flaring of the nostrils. When describing humans, it always evokes connotations of anger, outrage, and indignation. A more accurate translation of this verse then would be that when Jesus saw Mary and her entourage weeping, he was outraged in his spirit and deeply troubled. That made the passage a little bit more difficult for me to deal with. I mean, honestly, <laughs> kind of throughout my first sermon, I was like, okay, because I had pre-written a sermon before I studied and I got to here and I'm like, okay, because um, I have to answer this question. What ticked him off so much? Like, like he is inflamed with anger to the point that it's moved him to tears. Like he's, have you ever been that angry? Where you are visibly, physically shaking and moved to tears. There's two camps that um, have formed, two scholarly camps that have formed to help explain why Jesus becomes incensed and angry in this situation. And here's the thing. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I actually agree with both. I think they overlap each other. The first explanation is this, that he is angry at the brokenness of the world. That in this situation, he looks and he sees not just the brokenness of Lazarus's death, but the brokenness of an entire world system that he had created to be good, that he had created to be life-giving and whole and full of the shalom, the peace, the balance, the life-giving presence of God. And it's so broken and it is so messed up that every story ends in death. There's not a single exception. And he's angry when he looks and he senses everything that's gone wrong. 
I'm going to pause here and just ask a question. Where is God when I suffer? Where is God when I suffer? I think this text is informative. He is right there. And He is suffering with you. He is angry at the brokenness that assaults us. He is angry at the way the world has turned against everything He had created it to be that our joys are so dim and our sorrows are so deep. Where is God when I suffer? He is right there. Now push back a little bit more to think about this more. He's not just there with you. See, God has an infinite, unlimited capacity to be present. He has an unlimited ability in, in relational reserve. Think about it. How many people can you relate with deeply? It's probably a fairly small number. How many people can you truly be empathetic with? Like feel their pain and share their joy? Probably not that many. And the farther the circle gets out, the less their joy is joyful to you and the less their pain is painful to you. How overwhelming would it be if you constantly, every moment of the day, sensed every pain, every sorrow, every loss as overwhelmingly as the people who are experiencing it themselves? we would be absolutely crushed under the weight of it. We would be absolutely broken. Some of you who are more empathetic in your personality and in your leaning feel that every day because you watch the news. We live in a small world where every tragedy is reported, every point of suffering, the videos on. I mean, we see it, we experience it, and some of you are crushed by the brokenness that is around you because it is overwhelming to you. You do not have the capacity to suffer that much. Yes, God does. Peter tells us with God, a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. Weird statement. Pretty profound though. It means that a thousand years is like a day to God, right? A thousand years, like a day to God. That means that he is outside of time. He's, we call that being transcendent. He is transcendent to time. He is timeless. The beginning of the world at the end of the world, he, he's at both presently. He is ever present in his being. He doesn't exist in time like we do. He doesn't follow the flowing of minutes. He's not a slave to the passing of time. He is outside of time, transcendent to time in his nature. But this statement says more than just about his transcendence. It talks about his imminence. For him... A day is like a thousand years. You ever had a really long day? It was probably a day that didn't go incredibly well. It was probably a day that was really hard. Anybody get the flu lately? 12 hours of puking and it felt like a thousand years, kind of, every day. For God is like a thousand years. What that means is that he is more imminent in time than we are. He experiences every moment more deeply, more fully, more powerfully than we can comprehend. He experiences every up, every down, every joy, every sorrow, every pain. He is more present in that suffering than we are. And he feels it to an extent that we can't imagine. And he's angry. 
because the world that he created to be good is broken. It's not the way it was supposed to be. Now, there's a second camp that says that he's, he's, he's not just angry at the world. He's actually angry at Mary and Martha. At Mary and her entourage. And in fact, the grammar of the sentence, for me, makes that unavoidable. I mean, listen to it. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was incensed in his spirit and greatly troubled. Why in the world would he be angry at Mary when she's just suffering, when she is weeping and in pain? Why would he be indignant? I'm going to propose an answer to you. I think it's because they were actually standing in the presence of life himself, and they were grieving like they weren't. They were standing, not just next to the one who could and eventually would bring resurrection, but resurrection himself, the source of life and joy and purpose, right? When Jesus said, I am the bread of life, he didn't say I was the agent that I would give it to you. He said he himself was. When he said, I am the light of the world, he didn't say I would deliver you to a place of light. He said, I, my presence is the light of the world. He is the source of all of our joy of all of our purpose and the end of all of our desires. And he was standing there with them and they were mourning and weeping as if he were not. They were acting like he wasn't there or that he was there and he couldn't do anything. Our brother is lost and now we're hopeless. It's beyond the four day mark. You can't bring him back. You guys, when we get wrapped up in our pain, when we get wrapped up in our suffering, our pain becomes greater in our vision than his glory. And we rob God of his glory in the way that we mourn as if we were helpless. See, they were robbing God of his glory by filling their vision with their suffering instead of with his sufficiency. They were robbing God of his glory by arrogantly assuming they could measure his power and his motives. How much more complex would their mourning have been if they knew in that moment Jesus let Lazarus die? It wouldn't have made a difference if he had been there because he was there. He had a plan that was greater. He had a purpose they didn't understand. He had a goal that they could not see. It would only take time and progressive revelation for them ultimately to understand. In the moment, it wasn't for them to understand. It was for them to trust. Yes, when we stand in the presence of God, covered in the righteousness of Christ, When we see as we should properly see, we will not be distracted by our shame and our failings, by our temporal losses, no matter how painful or how difficult. Paul says in Romans 8 that the suffering of this world can't be compared to the glory that will be revealed to the sons of God. Because we will see 
in his presence, that no loss, if you are in the presence of the glory of God, filled with the vision of the glory of God, no loss can diminish your joy because his glory is greater. You guys, the goal is not Lazarus's resurrection. It is Jesus, the resurrection. Even at their best in this moment, and even as Jesus' heart breaks with them, it is incensed by them because their hearts misrepresent his character. His hearts are subtly prideful. And even as they come to him for comfort, even as they come together to give comfort and share loss, their hearts are lying about him. And he is indignant. He is angry at the sin and the brokenness of the world, and he is angry at the sin and the brokenness in them and in us. You guys, all the pain in the world flows from the same polluted spring. Do you see that? We want to say, why doesn't God solve that problem out there without recognizing that the same problem is in here? The reason that problem is out there is because this problem is in here. Human suffering comes from humans acting in a way that is not in accord with them being made in the image of God. And for God to be angry at the brokenness of the world implies and requires that he is also angry with the brokenness within us. At our pride, at our self-sufficiency, at our false wisdom, that we think we know what's best, that we think we know what God should have done, that we think we know how God should have acted, that we think we're righteous enough to be God's judge. Well, if he were a good God, if he were a righteous God, if he were a holy God, if he were the kind of God I wanted to believe in, then he would. And we end up subtly creating gods in our own image instead of submitting to the God of creation who made us in his image. I'm going to pause here for a moment because I know as soon as I talk about God being angry, for some of you, it fills your vision with a God who rejects you, who is indignant toward you. Because you've never known anger without rejection. You've never known what it was for someone to be righteously angry. Because God's anger does not devoid his love. God's anger does not rob him of his absolute commitment to love. Unlike us, God's anger doesn't in any way hinder his love. It is, in fact, an expression of it. Let me ask you this. Who did God take his anger out on? Jesus. God was angry at the brokenness in the world. God was angry at the brokenness in us. And he took that anger out, but he took it out on his son. Our perfect substitute. Even as Jesus stood there, inflamed at the brokenness in the world, at their hearts lying about him, he knew that he was going to die to rescue them from that brokenness. That he would become their perfect substitute in judgment so that they could be forgiven and brought back into life. You guys, listen to me. If you want to know God's heart, look at the cross, not your loss. 
If you want to know God's heart, look at Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, not the temporal suffering that is incumbent in your life. So what should we take away from this? What does it mean for us? I have three applications for us. First, when we suffer, we need to stop asking why and start asking what. When we suffer, we need to stop asking why. Your first impulse when you suffer is to ask, why me? Or why him? Or why them? God, why? Why? Implicit in that question is a, is a, is a pride that says, I, one, have the right to the answers, and two, I have the ability to judge the right answer. I have the capacity to know and understand You guys, when we suffer, we are tempted to rise up in our pride and judge God. We need to repent of that pride. Nothing makes us feel more prone to judging God than pain. And when we feel like that, when we feel our pain, we we just assume since he's all-powerful, he's obligated to use that power to prevent my suffering. Why didn't God exercise his strength on my behalf? And I make myself the judge of what is right and wrong. It's the same subtle assertion that Martha and Mary were making. Basically saying, Jesus, we're going to let you off the hook for this one. We're not going to hold you accountable for Lazarus' death because you weren't here. And since you weren't here, you couldn't do anything about it, right? Now, here's the thing. He wasn't there by choice. And what you're going to find is that he doesn't explain himself to his disciples. He'll reveal progressively more and more what he wants them to learn, but he never explains himself. He never tries to justify himself. He doesn't do that. God's not going to answer your why question because you are not his judge and he does not need to submit his motivations to you. He doesn't explain his answers, his actions, but, but he does show us his heart, you guys. He does show us his heart. And honestly, the only answer he will give is the only answer we need. It's the only answer that will truly satisfy us. It's the answer of himself. When he lays down his life for us, when he so fully identifies with our suffering that he endures it in a way we can't understand. He doesn't self-protect and distance himself and leave us on our own. He so fully enters into it. He suffers in ways we can't understand. And then he looks at us and he says, trust me. Have faith in me. Rest in me. When you trust, you stop asking why. And you start asking what? Lord, what do you want me to learn in this? What do you want me to gain from this? What's your hand doing in this? I know you love me in the midst of my suffering. What are you doing here that I need to learn? What what do you want me to do to others or for others in my suffering that they might also share in the blessing? What's going on here that I I can invite others into the blessing? What can I do to remind myself of your heart when I am tempted to doubt? What can I do to fill my vision with a God who loves me, even though right now it really hurts and I'm tempted to believe that you don't? Stop asking why and start asking what. Secondly, when we suffer, remind yourself that this age is passing away. When we suffer, we need to remind ourselves that we live in the overlap of the ages. The, The age of death is passing away. 
the age that has been marked by the rebellion of Adam is passing away. There's a new age coming in that's inaugurated by a new king, a king who died and rose again to inaugurate a new age of life. And that means that everything that happens now, everything that happens now is temporary. All of our joy, all of our suffering, this whole life is the prelude to the greater story. I mean, think about it. Lazarus came out of the grave covered in his grave clothes, right? He was raised from the dead, still tied to a dying age to die again. His his resurrection was temporary. The best it could do was simply give a reprieve to the ultimate suffering of this age. The only cure to this age is the age to come. When Jesus rose from the grave, he, he left his grave clothes in the grave. They came in. The women found the, the empty tomb, and his face cloth was folded. When he rose again, he rose in a new age with a new power, not defined by the limited brokenness and sorrow and death of this age. We don't live for this age. But we don't just sit around and wait for the age to come either, and that's the third thing. When we suffer, we should live for the age that is coming. We should work for what will last. See, when we fill our vision with what God is doing and what he's going to give us in the age to come, it will restore our motivation and our joy even when we're faced with suffering and failure and trial. This isn't the end, and we will not get the full realization and the blessing until the king returns. I'm going to close this out with a quote from C.S. Lewis. It's in your bulletin, um, but I love this, this quote. You can follow along if you want to open it up. He says this, if you read history, you'll find that Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. We need to fill our vision with what lasts, with what is coming, with the kingdom that the king has inaugurated. And it will free us to suffer in this age with hope and purpose. You guys are going to move into a time of response. I'm going to put some questions on the screen to lead our response ask you to pray and do some business with God. Um, I'm going to remind you that we have worship response cards in our bulletin. We would love for you to fill those out. If you have prayer requests, put them on there. We would love to pray with you and to pray for you. Um, if you have, um, if you're a guest with us, uh, let us know how you found us. We would love to know. Uh, if you're a first-time visitor, we have a gift for you at Connection Point. Just to honor you, say thanks for coming to visit. So just visit Connection Point on your way out. We'll get that to you. All right, some response questions to help us lead and prepare our hearts to worship. First, where am I currently being tempted to question the character of God? Where are you, instead of trusting the character of God, questioning the motives of God? Where's that point of suffering? Where's that point of conflict? Where's that point of injustice? Where's that point where you're looking at the brokenness of the world and you're questioning the character of God as a result? Where is that for you? Secondly, how can the cross and the resurrection of Jesus lead my heart to trust and faith even in pain? 
How can, by filling my vision with the cross and resurrection of Jesus, how can I be freed to trust the heart of God so that I come to trust the hand of God? Thirdly, how can I live for and point others to the hope that is coming even in my suffering? How's God equipping me in this suffering? How's God equipping me in this moment? Because He's not distant. He's not absent. He's not far away. His love is not absent. How can God, even in this place of suffering, lead you to fill your vision with hope instead of pain? And how can you, out of that, become an agent of hope for others, to serve and to love and to point others to the King who restores hope? How can you set your hope on the King of restoration instead of just on the restoration itself? on the God of resurrection instead of just the benefits of resurrection. Because it's in His presence that all things are made right and all things make sense. And it's outside of His presence that nothing makes sense and everything hurts. Who pray for us. We're going to go on to a time of response. We'll share communion in a moment. Father, we thank You that You are a God of resurrection that you didn't abandon us to the death that we introduced into this created order through our sin and rebellion, but you instead so fully identified with our brokenness that you absorbed it. In fact, you tell us in your word that he who knew no sin became sin for us. Remind us in our suffering how much you've suffered. Remind us in our pain, the pain you've endured to restore us to hope. Fill our vision with Jesus.